Welcome to Swartz Talking Sports. I'm your host, Les Swartz. We have got a fantastic show for you tonight. We've got former Major League Baseball great Vince Coleman in the house. Now, before we start, please hit that subscribe button. Love to hear your comments. Would love your support. We can be heard on Google Podcasts, Spotify, and also Swartz Talking Swartz on TikTok and Instagram. So this is an exciting show. We've got a live chat tonight. We've got an amazing guest. So let's bring him on. Former Major League Baseball great Vince Coleman. Uh, first, I would like to give praise and thanks to our Father in Heaven and through His Son, Jesus Christ, for giving me the opportunity to play sports. And I thank you very much, and I'm blessed and honored to be here on your show tonight. Uh, thank you, Vince. Greatly appreciate it. And we've got a lot to cover, and I know your time is precious, and we really do appreciate it. Now, before we even jump into your amazing baseball career, maybe a lot of people don't know, but you were an ass, you're a tremendous football player in college at Florida A&M University. Well, I would like to say it all started out because I was a walk-on and my mother made sure that I was going to go to college and what college I had chosen didn't choose me. So um, when I filled out summer school applications, the first summer school uh, school that accepted me was going to be either Florida A&M or Bethune-Cookman or Florida State. Mm -hmm. And since Florida A&M reached out first, and I knew I wanted to try out for the football team first because coming from Jacksonville was a football state and everybody loved football there. And that's the macho sport. It wasn't baseball. It was all football it was my first love. And by me going out for the graduating on a Thursday and signing up in summer school right that Monday, I started hanging out with all the football players and we get over to Florida State and we put on army boots and they run 72 flights of stairs. And it was grueling, 90-degree weather, 90% humidity. But I tell you what, it builds stamina, endurance, power, and speed without me knowing that that speed will come into play playing baseball. But I was just trying to get my legs strong. Um, but the first day of camp, I ran 429, 40-yard dash, and I caught their attention right away. And so they, you know, who's that little freshman right there that running 4-2? Uh, what position you play? And I was like, I'm a punter. <laughs> I'm a place kicker. Hold first. on, I guarantee you there's no punter or place kicker in the history of football that has run a 4-2. <laughs> I found that that to be true later on, but because um, but my cousin was a punter for the Minnesota Vikings at the time, and I thought it would have been great to have two African-American punters in the NFL, and that was my dream. So I went on to college and, and had a great career there as a punter or place kicker, and uh, in 1980 I beat the University of Miami with a 34-yard field goal with a minute left to go in the game, and, and that – you know, so when I go back home to Florida and when I go home to, to Jacksonville or Tampa or, or, or Miami, I'm known as the football player, not a baseball player. Well, I'm going to tell you, Vince, you, you broke my heart because in 78, you guys played in the 1AA championship. You played UMass. You beat us 35-28. You had, you know, uh, Rudy Hubbard, legendary coach. Ike Williams, a tremendous running back. Yourself. Yeah. Great. And, and to this day, that is, I believe, the last HBCU school to win any championship at that level. You're absolutely correct. That'll go down to history. as the only HBCU school would ever win a one Division One AA championship. And I'm so proud to have been on that team. It was 1978, and Albert Chester was the quarterback. Um but we had tremendous players, had a great coach, great team. The year prior to that, they had went 11-0, and but that divisional championship wasn't out there during that time. We had a tremendous team, but 
Only game we lost that year, we went 12 and one, we lost to Tennessee State. And who am I reminded by that all the time is the great Richard Dent. <laughs> I was going to say Richard Dent, yeah, Tennessee State. I'm wondering, did Ed Tutal Jones go to Tennessee State as well? Yes, he went. And yes, yes, he did. Uh, yes. I, I know my, I know my stuff. I know my stuff. Yes, so we're at Florida A and M. Well, so we're at A and M, and now how do we transition into your baseball career as a professional from A and M? Well, I was doing the spring practice, and you know, I, I could see them down there practicing baseball. And one day, I went up to my coach, and I said, "Well, coach, you know, can I go out and try it out for the baseball team?" He said, "Well, you can't play baseball." I said, "Well, give me three or four days, and." And if I don't make the team down there, um, then I'll come back to spring practice. And so, because I'm on a football scholarship. Mm -hmm. And so I go down there and I was very, I impressed the coaches by because we scrimmage every day. So I, I laid down a bunt or two, I stole second, stole third, and I made a couple plays and I was a center fielder. And, um, and, and through the course of the year went on and on, but the, the, what caught the attention from all the scouts was, was I was playing with, um, Hank Aaronson, Hank Aaronson, and, and and Bill Lucas. Bill Lucas was the first black general manager of the Braves okay. that put together the team with Bob Horner and uh, and uh, and a lot of other guys that came up through the Braves organization. But you know, all the scouts would come around and see those guys were seniors, and so they would come around and see me. And one game, I stole seven bases in one game against Alabama State, and that's what caught the attention for the scouts right then and there. That's a lot of stolen bases in one game. <laughs> now you got drafted you know I, I know you had a quick cup of coffee with the redskins that's a quick little interesting story how you came in for what a few days yes well in in in, in 81 82 my senior year you know i i i go to a mini camp and i'm there with the smurfs uh joe theisman art monk uh charlie brown and so i'm there every day in camp but during the time the punters was on the field, we was in the film room, and he wanted me to play wide receiver. Bobby Bethard allowed me, would not allow me to go out and punt. He said, instead of you kicking the ball, I want you to catch this ball and run this ball. You're running four, two, nine, 40-yard dashes. So I said, well, Bobby, I would love to do that, but just give me the opportunity to punt. He said, no, 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 there's no way I'm going to let you punt. And I said, well, Bobby, after three or four days, you know, I called my mom, I twist my ankle, and she said, well, maybe that's a blessing in disguise because the year before, <clears throat> I was drafted by the Phillies in the 20th round, but I decided to stay in school because I wanted to play football, and I also wanted to finish up on my degree. And, and so college life is the best life. Um, so I didn't want to leave school early, so I stayed in school. But I knew that right after minicamp was in May, June draft was coming up, and I said, well, I left and he begged me to stay. He Well, I shouldn't say he begged me to stay. He wanted me to sign a, a $10,000 free agent contract to guarantee that I would come back. Okay. And so I said, well, Bobby, I'm not going to sign it. I'm going to roll the dice and see where I fall into the draft. Now, I had led the nation in stolen bases two straight years at Florida A&M. 65 for 65 my junior year, and I was 65 for, for 66 my senior year. So I Amazing. thought that I would go in the first round. There's no doubt in my mind. I bet it like 380. Um, but here I am the first day of the draft and I'm waiting by the phone, sitting there all day long. And it's like phone never rang the first two days. And, you know, now they had the 10th selection and the Cardinals call and the scout came to the house and I said, well, let me ask you a question. You know, how come I went so low? He said, well, you know, your competition, your level that you played against wasn't at USC, Stanford, or 
a Cal State Fullerton and one of the big time schools. So that's where we select you at. That's where you fall into our slot there. I say, okay, well, and right then and there, I, I, I say, well, I'm going to prove you wrong. And, and you I'm did. And you sure did. <laughs> unanimous. You were, I believe, unanimous rookie of the year. Yeah, well, that that was a blessing in disguise. I mean, I was blessed by being with a lot of great ball players. Mm -hmm. I mean, I was blessed with Ozzie Smith, uh, Terry Pelton, Tommy Hurd, Jack Clark, and being managed by Whitey Herzog. Mm -hmm. On that team, we had an all-star at every position, you know, and that we had Joaquin Andahar, John Tudor as a pitcher, and, you know, we had the – everybody blueprinted they format after the Cardinals, how they want to go out and – and, and display, they, they they line up. You know, you had speed at the top. You didn't have a, a home run hitter, but one Jack Clark. But we had guys that consistently can handle the bat, that bat at 300. And, you know, we played great defense. And that's what we pride ourselves in, you know, that we go out every day and we take infield and we hit the cutoff man. We go to the right bases and we run the bases very well, you know. So, you know, by going with balls in the dirt, go from first to third, delay steals, steal in second and third, you know. So we we, we kept it excited. You know, Whitey goals was just always make the opposition opposition play a simple game of catch, but now they got to put a time limit on it. Anytime someone have to put a time limit on it, they're going to put pressure on you and they're going to throw it away. And so I was just by blessed. But remember now, I didn't start the season in the big leagues that year in 1985. It was 12 games in. And then I can remember like it was just yesterday that I got a phone call from Jim Fagosi. I'm down in Nashville and we was playing down there. And um, he said, well, you're going to, it's like four o'clock in the morning. He said, like, you're going to the big leagues. And I'm like, uh, really? And he said, well, trust me when I say this, this is the advice that Jim Fagosi gave me. He said, once you get to the big leagues, the game is going to slow down for you. Really? Now, what, what he was telling me was that because I had stolen 100 bases in, my, in A ball, 145 bases in A ball in Macon, Georgia, then I was in AAA the year before, I stole another 100 bases, 101 bases. Now, he said, Vince, you have the mentality to go and do something special. The game is going to slow. So when I got to the big leagues, what he was saying, that the lights are beautiful and bright, you know, they throw strikes, you know, and my – only question was that I just started switch hitting at a 22 year old kid. I started switching. I've been a right-handed hitter my whole life, you know? So now I'm in 22 in the minor leagues with George Kissel and we had a format. All he wanted to do is play pepper and put the ball in play. If I got on base, I could dominate. You couldn't stop me. You only try to contain me. So Terry Pillington was my roommate when I was in AAA. And once I got there and I say, TP, if I get on, you know what you're supposed to do, you know? So, and he said, I got you, I got you. So the rest is history. My first night in the big leagues, I stole four bases. Next night I stole three. The first 25 games I had 20 stolen bases and, 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 and I was a, 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 a spark plug for the Cardinals at that year. Um, uh, and, and then, you know, Whitey Herzog was the guy that really gave me the, 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 the confidence day in and day out. He always it, it insisted that I take off first and second pitch. He gave you the green light, part. didn't he? Oh, yes. I always had the green light. But, you know, I had so much knowledge and, and wisdom and um, encouragement and from all the other players that are around me that loved me, that wanted me to continue to go on and, and, and take it every time I could. And, and to your point, I mean, the Cardinals were a tremendous machine back in the day. You guys went to the World Series in 85. I think they won it uh, the year before you were drafted. I think in 81, they beat the Brewers. Um, they went in 85, 87. But you had 110 stolen bases your rookie year. 
which is a record that still stands. Three consecutive seasons with 100 steals. I mean, you set all these records, and now you look at baseball the way it's played now, Vince, and the stolen base is like a lost art. I know Ronald Acuna kind of brought it back a little bit. He's the first guy to go 40-70, but I don't think you'll ever see anybody reach 100 bases again. I just don't think it's going to happen. The game's changed. Well, I always thought it was easier to steal third base than second base, you know, based on the fact that once you get to second base, the catcher's setting up in the middle of the plate. I'm the, 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 I'm the worst thing that uh, uh, as a pitcher, you know, you're guarding against your ERA. So, you know, as the, the catcher translating the signs back to the pitcher, you know, so now you want to figure out what is, the signs are. You know, if the one first sign, second sign, third sign, first sign after two, a first sign after the outs. It's a pump system they may go with. Okay. Now, your job is to pay attention and to receive it and get it, you know, because now the pitcher do not want to, he's guarding against his ERA. So once I, and the pitchers are creatures of habit. Once I critique you and analyze you, you got a flaw of tips and tendencies that I can bury you. That's, I passed all that information down to my teammates. So whenever you saw me still in third base, it wasn't an accident because I'm still in on a breaking ball. And I would love to get that opportunity to do that, to teach that this day and age, because it's a, it's a tool, a weapon that I use on a system day in and day out. And it was perfected because we had the confidence and the, and the, and the, and the rights to, to do so from my manager. I mean, that's, that's incredible. And like I said, I, I used to watch you play, and it, it was amazing. You would you take second, you'd take third in consecutive pitches. It was, it was pretty amazing. I think back then, and you guys had some great speed on that team, right? You had, you know, Willie McGee, and you had Ozzie, and Lonnie. But I'd say probably you and Ricky Henderson were the guys that really, you know, exemplified the true base dealer in the 80s, I would think. You and the National and Ricky and the American. Ricky, Ricky was, I was in, in 1982. Three, I was in Macon, Georgia, and Ricky was my idol. I walk into my locker and I see Ricky. Uh, I put a picture of him up on my of my locker there, and you know, every day I would read the paper to see how many bases he stole tonight, and you know, that was my driving force. He and Tim Raines, and so Rock you know, Rains. knowing that they had the the fortitude to do that day in and day out by staying in shape, by coming, to, and then when I got a chance to meet Ricky, you know, and I, you know, what are your trade secrets? What are your your goals, you know, come to the ballpark early, stay late, you know, stay around the longest. Those are the guys that, you know, stay in the weight rooms, always got to stretch, you know, get into the ice tub, you know, things of that nature. So, um, but for me, you know, I was a mischievous kid, you know, so coming up. So I always love the challenge. I always love to compete. And I always looked at it as competition day in and day out that I figured that if, if I made you nervous, then it would not just benefit me, but it benefit my ball club. And so with that being said, it was a domino effect for the Cardinals because we we thrived on speed. We wasn't home run hitters. We try to put pressure on you by going from first to third, taking advantage of the extra bases, going with balls in the dirt. And, you know, it, it, it kind of gravitated throughout our lineup day in and day out. Now, we do have some questions. We actually have a lot because uh, I think a lot of people are really excited to talk to you about this. But before we get to that real quick, you're going to, you know, you're going to be going to your first World Series. You're in the postseason against the Dodgers. And this was really publicized back in 85. And I really believe that the injury that you suffered, I think, was the sole reason why the Cardinals ultimately didn't win the World Series. I mean, they went seven games. There were some bad calls. But I think if Vince Coleman 
is on that team, you guys win that in six, five or six games. That's just my opinion. But can you just kind of talk about what actually happened with that? You know, you, you know, it was just an innocent thing. You got rolled over up. What happened there? Well, I have to give credit to the, to the, to the Royals. They played very well. They pitched very well. They had Danny Jackson and Saberhagen, you know, they pitched outstanding. We didn't put the ball in play as much as we should have, but we, we, we would like to. Um, we was up three to one, and then all of a sudden, you know, a tailspin. Uh, it was a big play, one play that cost us one uh, uh, inning or uh, the, the, the ball game, basically. The dinkager call at right. first base, you know. So, um, but yes, I didn't play at all during that World Series, only because of the bad luck. I was on the field at the time. It was pregame, and it started drizzling, and I'm standing at first base. And uh, Terry Pendleton and I was together and we was conversating. And so this big tarp polling machine is ran by a guy down in the right field corner. For whatever reason, he wanted to bring it out because it was threatening to rain in the forecast and it started drizzling. Um, <clears throat> so I didn't hear it. I didn't see it. If I saw it, I would have ran away from it. If I hear mm -hmm. it, then someone would have warned me. But it kind of like trapped me down and ran roll up to my hip Oof. which it broke cracked my tibia that Oof. it was enough to take me out of uh, that series that series so it was an unfortunate accident but the, the blessing part about it that i was able to come back um, within a month which was like november and continue to work out and, and get my speed back together and come back and have another have a career Incredible. Again, I said, you know, just unfortunate bad luck. But like you said, you definitely bounce back stronger than ever. But we do have a few questions uh, from some of our viewers. So I want to throw them at you. And uh, let's uh, hear from questions for Vince Coleman. And the first one is from Tech for Fun. A 4.2940R dash. That's what a lot of exclamation points, Vince. What was your workout regimen back then? Well, what's if if you saw me in high school, I was a four or five guy. Okay. And I graduated on a Thursday and I started summer school, which I went to Florida AM that Monday. My regiment workout every day was that I was working out with the seniors and they would go over to Florida State and they put on army boots. You had to run 10 flights. And I tell it to this day, I remember that 72. It was 72 flights of stairs. Oof. You would run 10. The first time I did it, I only did five and I was regurgitating, you know, and they get up freshman. You can't make the club in the tub. You can't hustle with a full muscle. You saw go back home to Jacksonville. And I looked up and I said, well, get up. Don't give up. And I continued my workout. Now, after the workout, you would go and run, uh, one fifties, just striders after that, you know, because that, that the power endurance and speed was just from the running the uphill with the army boots on. Oof. We did that every day religiously. I mean, and I say every day, you say, well, no, you couldn't. Have I did it every day, every day for three months. That's all I knew. That was my mentality. I had no choice. You know, it was no other option. You know, I didn't have a scholarship. I was a walk on. You know, I, I wasn't wanted. You know, out of all the thousands of uh, junior colleges and in, in the state of Florida, no one wanted Vince Coleman. I wasn't the guy. I was a walk on. So, with that being said, my first day of of, of camp with the Florida AM team, you had to run four 40 yard dashes just to see what type of shape you was in. Mm -hmm. And I ran back to back four two nine. So now I go on to since a 78 to 85. Now I'm in the big leagues. Now I'm in the big leagues and everyone see me stealing bases. The first question I get is that when I go back home, how in the hell you got so fast? 
because I wasn't that guy in high school. You were the four or five guy. I was a four or five guy, but I tell everybody until this day. And, you know, I have a daughter right now runs at university of Washington and she's a track girl. But ever since she was 10 years old, you know, I had her running bleachers, running heels. I didn't have her put on the army boots, <laughs> No, but running heels and running bleachers gave her the stamina, endurance and the power and the speed, you know? So I would credit everything that I did because I was by Donald Shockley. And remember Donald Shockley had a son, the quarterback for the uh, University of Georgia and went on. The DJ Shockley. DJ, exactly. Now his father was my teammate oh. when I was at Florida a and he was the guy that introduced me to the army boots at Florida a and in 1978. And that became my regiment throughout my whole baseball career. So Whenever you come to work out with me, uh, you ask bring your work boots. Bring, yeah, <laughs> no, you don't have to bring them. I have them for you. Oh, excellent! Well, guess what? <laughs> That's one thing I'm not going to do. The army boots things. Now I'll just stick to sneakers, Vince. But well, we got we've got another question here for you uh, from Rob. It says, Vince, have you ever stolen home plate? If so, how difficult was it compared to the other bases? I stole a home base, home plate five times throughout my major league career. Okay. And so it, it 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 all has to line up, whether that the third baseman is back um, and you can allow to get enough lead. Now, the, the times I say I've stole third base is because I had <laughs> Jack Clark, uh, Pedro Guerrero, uh, Bob Horner. So Oof. these are, you know, power hitters. Yep. So the third baseman is nowhere near the bag. You know, he's back, you know. And a lot of times it probably was two outs and they, they back anyway, you know, didn't think that I was going anywhere. But if I catch a guy like a lefty, uh, like a Frank Viola, uh, Jim Deshades or Bruce Hurst or Sid Fernandez, when they back is to you, mm -hmm. you know, so therefore, I, and it definitely can't go into the, to the windup. Of course I'm gone. Right. If you give me that opportunity, I would take it. Now, I, <laughs> I did get a, a stolen uh, a stolen home on a, a back end. It was four stolen bases on one play. And I don't know if you have that on film right now. How do you um, do four stolen bases in one play? So, so, so this is a major league record. I'm going for the rookie record in in in, in Wrigley Field. Um, I needed one base to break Samuel record. And I'm on second. Willie McGee's at first. And I go into third base and I hit first because Jody Davis has a gun and I, and I slide and I go to grab the base and I come off of the base, I overslide the base. Now, Ron Say has the ball, he's coming at me. My only instinct was to get up and go home. So I'm home and I'm in a rundown now between Ron Say and Jody Davis. Scott Sanderson is a pitcher at this time. <laughs> he did not cover home. He went to third base. Now I beat the throw from Jody back to, to Ron Say and now home plate was wide open. So I ended up home. Willie McGee comes from first all the way to third base. So it's four stolen bases on one play and in Wrigley field. You guys, you guys certainly could bring it. That's for sure. Um, now my, the last, last question I have before we, uh, we end this first segment would be uh, big daddy asks what the deal with the special sliding gloves players are using now. Looks like it's adds six to eight inches to their reach. Now, you and I talked about that before we came on, right? Right, right, right. And, and that's why I laugh because, you know, they say, they, they first of all, they shorten the base. Well, well, first of all, I was still 50 more bases. I you think can so. tackle that 100, I have 150, only because 
they 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 shorten the bases, mm-hmm. right? So that's three inches right there. Plus, they give you this glove that's six inches. So that's another foot. Now, opposing me taking 11 steps to get to second base, I take nine steps. And now you put the pitch clock in there and say, okay, well, now it's three, two. Now he's thrown over. Just assume he's thrown over twice. twice right. He can't throw over a third time. Now I'm watching the pitch clock. I'm on first base. So the clock's going to three, two, one. I'm gone. You know, so that's an extra step of jump that I would have that anyone could steal more bases at this point in time because they're making it a lot more easier. And what they're trying to do is speed up the game and make it the same, try to compare to when we played during our time because it's one play, and I watch a lot of baseball. It's it's two plays, I should say, um, that I didn't see this year, and I've yet to see it. You tell me, you have you seen it? Okay. Have you seen where the, a delay steal this year? No, I have not. You have not seen a delay steal nope. that I perfected. We've all perfected that back in the, the 80s, 90s. You know, so I'm going to kill you with a delay steal, especially when they put that shift on the way they – it's tough hitting a moving target. If You know, you had the shift on and the guy's off of third base and playing halfway, still in third base would be much more easy with a delay steal. The and catcher, you can't even do the shift anymore, Vince. They outlawed that. You can't do the shift anymore, but I was saying last year when they right. had it, Right now, I would still do it if I was there. It takes a lot of guts and balls to do it. The other one is that I've not seen someone go in the ball in the dirt. I've I've not seen any. I watched the Padre games here. I've not seen anyone go in the ball in the dirt. So there's two baseball plays that it it does the fans a disservice of how they watch the game today. There's no more excitement. The game now is very predictable because you're going to hit a home run or strike out, you know? You got um, that so right. it, 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 and the one thing that I look at every day when you read the paper in the box scores, you see hits, runs, errors, and SO is strikeouts. Every team has 10, and you cannot produce runs that way, you know? Back in the day, you, you, you had too much pride to strike out. You had a two-strike approach. You had back control. You know how to take the two strikes and hit the ball the other way. You know, you look at Tony Gwynn, you know, how great of hitter he was. He can right. take the ball, hit the other way. Wade Boggs, George Brett, as a right-handed hitter, Pedro Guerrero, Jack Clark, two home run hitters that I played with, live for two strikes. First of all, their approach was that, or our approach was that, you're not going to get me out. Two strikes, you're not going to strike me out because I'm going to choke up and have back control. Right. I'm going to eliminate one whole side of the field and and use the you know play pepper with the second baseman and knock him down. I'll tell you one thing: those are those are plays that really uh, that are gone from baseball today. And I understand what they're trying to do. They do want to speed the game up, but I mean, I, I'm a traditionalist. Everyone knows that. That's I just like the way the game used to be played. But we're gonna. This has been great. We're gonna come back and talk second inning. We're gonna talk a little bit about minorities in baseball, uh, both players and managers, and and what's going on, and get your take on that as to why there isn't as many American-born players that way. And we'll do that after these messages. Forever twenty-four fit Leland's only gym with twenty-four hour access. Get fit when it's convenient, utilizing Life Fitness cardio and weight machines. And for those of you who prefer free weights, there is a free weight area as well. Start your membership today and get on your way to a better you. Six Happiness, 
Enjoy fresh Asian cuisine in a relaxed and friendly atmosphere where we believe good times deserve great food. Featuring the best sushi chefs in the Leland area. So come on in and we guarantee you will be delighted. Welcome back to Swartz Talking Sports. I'm Les Swartz. We're joined right now. This has been exciting for me. Legendary major leaguer, Vince Coleman, former St. Louis Cardinal. I know, Vince, you you, you did play out your career with with a few teams, but you're really known as a Cardinal, right? I mean, that's where the, oh, yeah. the tremendous success came from. Um, now, before we go, we're, we're going to touch on the minorities in baseball because I know you definitely wanted to talk about that. You have some opinions on that, and I'd love to hear them. Now, you did play in one more World Series, and that was in 87 with the Cards uh, against the Minnesota Twins. Uh, I was not a big Twins fan. Kirby Puckett, great ball player. Just not a so. What happened there? That was another seven-game series, correct? Yes, another seven-game series uh, that went uh, the distance. Uh, we won all the home games. They won all the home games. It's just that they played more home games than us. Um, but you know, and how could I put into words the appreciation I have for the St. Louis Cardinal fans? You know, you know, whenever you walked into that ballpark, you know, you saw the sea of red and and, and red and white. You know, it was. Um, very, very uh, intriguing to go there to know that, you know, I played that for, you know, uh, eight years, mm -hmm. eight years. And it was the greatest place to be, you know, I'm honored to be into the Hall of Fame there. You know, it's the greatest place to have played baseball, great organization, great city. You know, once you wore that uniform, you know, you, you feel like royalty. Well, I, I just want to say it was it was an amazing career that you had in baseball, but, you know, specifically for the Cardinals, I just, like I said, I used to watch you play. No one had a better first step. I love Ricky, but no one had a better first step than Vince Coleman. That's just my opinion. Um, now, I know we want to touch on on uh, minorities in baseball, and it's always been a big, you know, they've had uh, certain people looking at this. There's been matrixes on this. And in doing the research uh, on this, uh, in 2023, a uh, 6.2% of all major league rosters were made up of African-American, basically, you know, born players here in the United States. Um, but it, when you played in like, you know, in the 80s, in the mid 70s to the 80s, it was nearly 20%. It was about 18 and a half percent. What do you attribute to that to being as far as like African-Americans born here that just don't play baseball or why is it so low comparatively to what it was 35, 40 years ago? You know, coming up as a kid, you know, you always go to the ballpark, you go to YMCA, you go to the local parks, and you had organization, little league, uh, recreation teams, you know, that had all these leagues together, no matter what city you was in, Atlanta, South Carolina, Tampa, you know, but now you go to these certain cities, the same parks, you know, in, in Jacksonville, you go to Chicago, you go to Minnesota, St. Louis, you know, to Tampa, San Diego. I mean, so you go to those YMCA's, and baseball is not even offered. There's no, not even an option there. You know, you they are offering football and they are offering basketball. So a lot of the guys these days are looking for the instant success. Mm -hmm. And I think that back in the day, you had a grandfather, you had an uncle, or you had your dad. Uh, someone was pushing baseball where you go out in the, in the yard every day and you, you play with the wiffle ball and you play strikeout, you know, and that's mm -hmm. something that you do consistently all day long. But those are not some of the traits that little kids now revert to. They, Like I say, they want the instant sex. They play football and they play basketball. And I think that, you know, the travel ball, the club ball mm -hmm. has really hurt because now that's an expensive sport. 
when you play travel ball and club ball, I had a daughter that plays volleyball, she plays soccer and she play all this, you know, in track, you know, you play for the, the hotel, the flights and the your per diem for food. That's in the $5,000 just to do that. And too many low income minorities cannot afford that, you know, so it kind of like hurt them that they don't have the, the resources to participate at a lower level, uh, a level of baseball where that they are not in that community or that in that environment. So it's, 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 and what has happened also is that every major league team now has these academies over in Dominican. Mm -hmm. Every team in the, in some big market, like the Yankees may have two academies over in mm -hmm. Dominican and they can uh, recruit these players and sign them up when they're 16 years old and you know you give them an opportunity they do an outstanding job by housing them take care of them and then they give them a great check and it's enough to sustain them for a lifetime and but they give them the opportunity for two or three years and then when they feel that they're adequate enough to bring their talents a skill set over to the state the ones that are good enough to come then they do that but you know, it's just unfortunate that we don't have that vehicle over here to have minorities that are in a low income to have the uh, the resources to play baseball a consistent, but uh, even to be introduced to it. And interesting that you brought that up. You know, if you look at the actual statistics right now in 2023, you know, 35 percent of all major league rosters are made up of, you know, um, Latino and Hispanic players, which obviously encompasses, you know, Dominican Republic uh, born players. Back in the day in the 70s, it was it was around 7 percent. Right. And now you've got a lot of Asian born players coming in back then. You didn't have ball players from Korea or Japan coming in. Uh, right now, you've got a guy in the American League who's favored to win the uh, MVP two years in a row, Shohei Otani. And yeah. you never would have seen that in the 70s or early 80s, correct? Right. Well, the game has changed where they open it up to a wide, broader things where that, you know, no matter where you are, or where you're from, you, you have the opportunity to come over and play. It was very limited back in the day. And, you know, for the fact that you know, back in the early 80s, you didn't have the academies that was over in the Dominican. So they was always coming over here and given the opportunity to play. But the skill set probably didn't match up to where we were at that time, you know. So it was very limited and, and the skill set wasn't there. But, you know, right now, the game has changed. It's gotten better. I, I can say that for sure that it does, you know, make a great deal of, of of opportunities for the Dominican players because they start at a young age and getting major league coaching and and big top notch guys over there scouts to go there to give them the opportunity to play and even come over here and 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 have that competitive edge. Well, let me ask you this because growing up, uh, you know, we're, we're about the we're about the same image. I'm not going to say we're we're still very young, right? Very young. Yeah. Very young. One of us is faster than the other, and I look young. You do. <laughs> And one of us is faster than the other, and it's not me. Even if you gave me a 50-yard head start, I think I'd, I think I'd pull a hamstring on the way to the uh, finish line. But when you were growing up, uh, like kind of like me, it, nothing was uh, um, specialized, right? You, we played all sports. I mean, you know, right. coming from Boston, you know, in the wintertime, we played hockey, we played basketball, we played football and baseball. Is it, is, could it potentially be that everything's been so specialized now where you're you're penciled into one sport from the time you're 10 or 11 that's your potential and you're playing in basketball it's aau it's travel and that's all you're doing 12 months a year you think that might have something to do with it i think that you know it kind of like does the kids a disservice because you lock them in and they don't 
really get the chance to use all their fast twitch muscles to utilize them from one sport to another. You know, it pigeonholes them, and you don't want to be pigeonholed. My daughter ran track. She played basketball, and she played uh, 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 soccer, and then she played softball. She mm -hmm. In high school, she played three sports. And the reason why she stopped running track for a, a little while during the summer was because they told her she had to um, uh, go with the track team opposed to playing her sport, which she wanted to do, playing soccer, you know? And so it was, it was, it was like, you know, as a parent, you know what's great and what's good. And some parents are bought into the system where they feel that they have to spend all their time or their money. This is the end all be all the vehicle to make it to the major leagues or make it to the college. And so, you know, they buy into that system with the club ball, travel ball is that if you don't play for me, then you can't play for the, for the school, you know, so it's a whole lot of particulars that that goes along with that. And it's a lot of peer pressure, actually, because, you know, like you say, back in the day, they didn't have travel ball, a club ball. We played all sports. I played football, basketball and baseball in high school. And then I went on to college and played both sports, you know. So and that was one of the reasons I picked Florida A&M, because they had two uh, a great program, but they was going to allow me to play both sports. And, you know, you, you and I was blessed by being there because, you know, in baseball, you had a great coach, great system. Uh, Hal McCray was there four years prior to Andre Dawson. Then Andre Dawson came. Then I came into to pick the team at Florida A&M. And then Marquise Grissom came right after me. So Florida A&M mm -hmm. had a great program where you produce the four Hall of Fame. Well, I should say all stars mm -hmm. uh, that, that that played in the in, in the. Um, in the, in the major league baseball. So I'm very proud of that. And one of my biggest accomplishments of, 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 of when I played and, and started in the all-star game in 1987 and in Cincinnati, I was in left field and Andre Dawson was in center field and coming from an HBCU school, you know, Florida A&M, I thought that was a great accomplishment for me. And our coach was there at that game, you know, so pop Kittles. The Hawk was a tremendous player. Um, I mean, Boy, I mean, you want to talk about electric. I mean, he could hit for power. He could run. He was a five-tool. He was a five-tool player. Oh, no doubt. Yes. Um, yes. Now, regarding minorities in baseball, that's with the players. That That's on the player's side. I really want to address the managerial side because – you know, we all knew Frank Robinson was the first manager, you know, you know, of color to ma to manage in major league teams with the Indians. But you only have two managers right now that are African-American, right? You have Dusty Baker and Dave Roberts, and they're both incredibly successful managers. Uh, Baker won it all last year with the Astros. He's been a winner wherever he's gone. Dave Roberts has already won one with the Dodgers. Now, uh, they better win tonight. Uh, if they lose tonight, they're out in three straight to Arizona. That's going to be a little bit of an upset. But why do you think that maybe more managers uh, are, are not there? Because they have obviously proven that, you know, they can manage in the big leagues and manage successfully. I think when you look for a manager, you're looking for leaders of men. And I know that they have done a great job and uh, that Dusty have done over the years. I mean, like you say, he's been at four different organizations that has done very well and made it to the uh, World Series and playoffs uh, throughout his uh, tenure of being a manager. And now you have Dave Roberts have been there the same way. And they're great leaders of men. They have the full respect. They're old school. They know that what it takes to become champions, you know, when you come into uh, the 
preparation is the best form of learning and how you prepare your team to go, you know? So when you come into the ballpark now, some teams take infield every day. Some mm -hmm. guys elect not to. Some guys run the bases doing bat practice. Some guys not to. But I know for a fact that they put emphasis on how to fundamentally sound, run a ball club, what it takes to take advantage of the extra bases, going with balls in the dirt, delay steals, bunting, hitting the ball the other way. You know, so those fundamentals has a big play when it comes down to playoff baseball. You don't want to see the mistakes being made on the bases and 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 because that could cost you a ball game. And I know they put a lot of emphasis on that because they're old school guys. I mean, they, they want you to come early, stay late. And because knowledge builds confidence, confidence makes you play fast. And when you play fast, you kick ass. I like it. I like it. Can we coin that phrase? Yes, yes. <laughs> well, now I know you're a speed guy, and and your daughter is a, a chip off the the block, right? So, uh, Capulani Coleman, I think I pronounced that correctly. You're absolutely correct. Right. I'm proud of you. And and right behind me, we've got a University of Washington. We got UW okay, number come, one. By the way, down. Washington undefeated big game against Oregon this yeah, week. Okay. Big game this week. Big game this week. And that's uh, that's so Dun uh, Dunzi, the uh the, the I'll be receiver. there. I'll be there. Oh, you're gonna be well, you'll have to give us a first hand report, Vince, because that's a huge game. That's a biggie. But so yeah. now I know she's a freshman this year. So what is she running at yeah. Washington? And why she's did she pick Washington? Running. She's gonna be a four hundred uh hurdles, obviously in college. Three hundred mm -hmm. was in now Cappy was a, a three hundred hurdle, hundred meter hurdles. Uh she won the state two years in a row here in San Diego. Okay. Um, a 300 hurdles, ran 42.50, and then she ran a 13.9 in the 100 meters. Um, um, but she's been blessed, I mean, with, with pure just talent, raw talent. I mean, she's a competitor. She's an athlete. She haven't had the great coaching yet. So mm -hmm. I'm excited. She hasn't started lifting weights yet until now. She's in college, and now she's going to get a coach. The reason why we picked uh, – <clears throat> now – University of Washington was nowhere on her radar. I mean, from the beginning of coming to a senior year, um, she had Oregon, USC, uh, UCLA, Stanford was right there knocking on the doors. And But Jeshua Anderson is an amazing guy. I mean, he had been, it was like he was courting Cappy since she was a sophomore. So I asked, you know, you know what made him, you know, so intrigued about Cappy? He said, well, he saw when she was a junior, she long jumped 20 feet and she's not even a long jumper. She just went out to just do it that week for, for points. That's what caught his undivided attention. He said right away, she's an athlete. And he stopped following her because Cappy last year was on the, the, the nation's number one volleyball, high school volleyball team here in the state of San Diego. They went 32 and 0, only lost one set. Cappy was an outside hitter. She jumps like Jordan. You know, she can jump, she can hit it. And then she, her freshman year, she was on the basketball team where it was 32 and 0. She averaged like 25 points. So she she is an athlete and very competitive. So he's excited to have her. He's cracking his knuckles. Joshua won three NCAA championships while he attended Washington State. Wow. So he knows a little bit what he's talking about, you know, when it comes to um running preparing, preparing for the full, for the 400 hurdles. So we we excited about it. I'm excited for um, the one thing I can say about Cappy, or my daughter, is that she is one of the hardest workers. If you tell her to get up at five o'clock in the morning, she'll go. She'll be there, uh, never late. You know, never ran away. You know, injuries never 
really stopped her from doing anything. She doesn't make excuses. She's prepared hard. So I'm excited for her. Well, based on what you've told me today, Vince, I mean, uh, you, you know, just the work ethic that, that you have. I mean, you know, uh, with the, the Army boot thing still throwing me. Like, I, I, I'm never going to look at <laughs> Army boots or work boots again the same after hearing what you're doing. And I'm not going to try to do what you did. But it seems like fire. she's got that same, you know, really hard work ethic that you had that got to, you know, got you to where you need, where you are where, and where you were. Um, so we do have a couple questions. Um, to finish up this segment. So um, if my amazing producer can pull those up. All right. So Tech for Fun says, what is it like to be famous? Well, that's something I can't ask. I imagine when you were playing, you couldn't go anywhere without someone wanting an autograph. What's that like, Vince? Well, you know, when I came up as a kid, you know, I admired, you know, Willie Mays, uh, 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 Pete Rose, was my idols and then I get to the major leagues and now I see Willie Mays and I meet Pete Rose and you know they all of all me because they by the time I saw them I had like 25 stolen bases and you know they came to me and they gave me all this advice on how to continue my success you know play this game as though you was playing when you was a kid you know don't let anyone intimidate you you know uh, work on your first step. This is the advice that Willie Mays gave me. They were so humbling and honored, you know, and here I am just a kid, just in awe of them that gave me all the confidence in the world. So whenever I go somewhere and someone see me, I am so grateful and honored to sign an autograph, to take that time, to spend time or whatever it might be. When, you know, I was blessed by being with Ozzy and Ozzy taught me a lot by how to be that personal chain, you know, because those fans pay a lot of money to come see you play. And all they ask is that they never get that opportunity because at one point in their life, they probably wanted to be that baseball player and they never made it to that major league level. And now here they are fans of yours. So just take the time and it won't hurt you. Just have, be respectful and humble and honor. All right. We have one more question. This is from Rob. What's impressive is everyone knew he was going to steal yet. He did it anyway. I mean, uh, well, and, and, and to speak to that, Vince, right? So you still hold the record with 50 consecutive steals without being caught. No one's ever done that. Well, I tell you that I always thought third base was easier to steal than, 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 than second base. But I was blessed by being in the minor leagues with, and this was proud of me being drafted, Don Blasting game. I don't know if you heard of Don Blasting game. He was a player for the Phillies, but he became a, a great manager in Japan. He was very analytic and, you know, he would come when he, by the time it was just, you know, God kind of like put us in play together because when he became a coach, I was drafted. And so now here I am in this skull session every day, you know, with, 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 with film and video on, on all the lefties. And that's what I telltale sign on who could dissect that pitcher on left-handed pitchers. You know, so when I came into the league, I was in the minor leagues with Tom Brown and I was in the league with Zane Smith. I was Bruce Hurst, Honeycutt, you know, um, Bobby O'Hara, Sifrenet. So we all came through the minor league system together. Mm -hmm. So now I can have videos of these guys and, and now it's either in your head, your hands, your knees, your feet. A lot of times like Bruce Hurst, and Honeycutt, and even Tom Glavin, it was in his setup. So whenever they came set, it was already predetermined that they was going home. Their preacher's habit. They don't know it. They don't know what I know. So I was blessed with this gift 
through Don Blassingame that gave me this tool of knowledge on how to dissect pictures. I kept that secret with me to the, and I still have it with me because in St. Louis, you know, we had the first base dugout was on the first base side. We had a camera in there just for pictures. And no one knows this, but, you know, everybody want to look at now the analytics and the cyber metrics on the, the pictures and that stuff. I did that back in the day. That what gave me the edge. And so, you know, I would pass that on. So going into every ball game, I knew who I could steal off of and who I couldn't steal mm -hmm. off of. And guys that I could not steal off of was very, probably a guy like uh, Terry Mulholland. Terry Mulholland was very quick and had a quick pickoff move. He did not know I was going, but the catcher was thinking I was going because I'm still, you know, with my aggressive lead. Now, Ozzy's batting second, and now I say, Ozzy, I can't take this guy. You go get that fastball first pitch, you know, you you wear it out. Will it, if you're there, the fastball is there. Now, going into a ball game, they would always know ahead of time who I could still off of, I couldn't. The, the two pitchers, I would say that, I respect it the most, and I can tell you this today. They didn't know that at the time, but Terry Mulholland was a left-hander and Roger McDowell as a, as a, as a right-hander. Had two of the qu had quick feet. They was very athletic. You know, so I had to respect them and knowing that anyone else, I'm going to bury you. You know, <laughs> so it was, it, was, it was a chess match with the fact that if we want to put on a hit and run, if we want to put on a button run, you, you can only try to – contain me you couldn't stop me so uh, Ozzy and I had our own signs whether if, if I knew that the 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 third baseman was back and he wanted to bunt the third base and I bunt and run and I can go all the way around the third base we had little plays like that you pick know, your but, poison right yeah pick your poison right they 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 they, they can um they couldn't, like I say, they couldn't stop me. They can only try to contain me. You well, know, there, was, but. there was one more question, and, and, and this might actually ask you to spill your secret. And if Tony, if Tony can bring that back up for us. And this was, this was a question that said, what was the first thing from Gary McNeil? What is the first thing you look at with the pitcher when you get on first base? What's the first thing if, you look at? If, if it, uh, you got two, you know, you got a right hand and you got a left hand. Right. You know, going into that ball game, I know at the head, the hands, the knees, or the feet, you know, the setup. You know, then I look at how he sets his hand. If he sets his hands up high by his chest, he's already a loaded position. He could get to his load real quick and throw. But he has his hands down to his belt. Now he has to lift them up to go. So that's time. You know, so I already know that going into the ball game. So the base is stolen before the ball game even starts. Now, the right-hander is pretty much basically simple, is that you break the left knee, you have to go to the plate. Now, you run against a guy like Sutcliffe or you run against Rick Roden to give you the trick knee, the balk move. They taught them this over with the Dodgers. You know, so and I go to the umpire when I get on base and I say timeout, and I go to the umpire and say, you know what? He has a great balk move. I don't want you to miss it, so be on the lookout for it, okay? So now, with that being said, Rick Rode know that he has no, no, no other resource other than to give me the balk move and hope that he can catch me. You know, he go get the balk call on me. Maybe he doesn't, you know. So it's a give-take thing. You know, Rick Roden, he didn't have a chance, you know. So he's going to do it as well. So I knew the, the pitchers that, was, that, that, that I had to be worried about that I let the umpire know about that I could still off of. So... Those things that I knew that going into this ball game, 
The one thing that I did know is that who I could still love of, I couldn't. It wasn't one particular thing. It was several different things, but I never went into the ball game blind, and I never guessed. Whenever I saw the first time against Randy Johnson, that he was the first batter I faced when he came up from Montreal, I got a base hit up the middle between his leg. Now I'm on first base. I don't know him. There was no footage on him, no homework whatsoever. I'm taking, I got both feet on the carpet. You know, back in the day, you know, you had the turf and I got mm -hmm. both. So I'm going to make him throw over because he he's telling his mom, you know, hey, I'm going to pick off Vince Coleman, you know. <laughs> so so he going to give me everything he got. And and all we're doing is videoing, videoing. So it served the purpose for the next time we see him that I know his move, his tips and tendencies or his flaws that he may have that I could pick up. And come to find out he was playing in his glove, he's playing in his glove. And and so he would he would he would twitch his glove when he's going to first, and he, he kept it straight when he was going home. And Frank Viola was the same way. He would fan his glove. Uh, uh, Rich Aguilera would do his finger, you know. So it, it was a lot of things that that I look in there that I would find. Now these are questions from 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 viewers, right? I have two. First of all, what's it like? intimidation wise to face a guy six foot ten on the mound number one and did you ever face the pitcher from the astros jr richard well first of all facing against randy johnson it wasn't an intimidation factor because he was a lefty and i was a righty okay. it was only lefty on lefty that would be an intimidating like he okay. could throw you know drop he would intimidate me <laughs> <laughs> so it wasn't really intimidating um but if you go and you ask every old school guy i say old school guy from Ozzy Smith, the Pedro Guerrero, the Jack Clark. Who was the most in Andre Dawson, Dave Winfield? You ask anyone who was the one pitcher that they feared, and they would come up with the same answer. And it was J.R. Richard. Wow. They say he was that intimidating. He threw hard. He was wild enough to be effective. They, no one never said Nolan. Nolan was good. Nolan threw strikes. Nolan hit you when he wanted to hit you. You know, you know, you go get the fastball, you go get the hammer, you know, but, but I mean, it was like Jr. they say he was like releasing the ball and it was already, you didn't even see it. You know, the ball had a little rise on it, you know? So um, when you have, when you're facing a guy like that, you just tip your hat or you, you, you like bunt on him, you know, for me, you know, I'm a, I'm a, <laughs> you're gonna lay a bunt down that's, on that's, mr richard that's, huh? that's, that's, that's why nolan ryan and i didn't get along real well because he hated to be exposed he wasn't a good fielder mm -hmm. and 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 i could remember bunting on him a couple of times the next time i got you know he didn't hit me but he threw it up and in he on buzzed me, you, know? you didn't he <laughs> now what is everybody wants to know now so obviously uh and and again i i know your time's limited and i really do appreciate this but so what is Vince Coleman doing now? What are you doing with your life now, Vince? I'm a full-time dad, um, you know, public transportation, uh, taking the kids in school and back and forth. But on my spare time, I head to the golf course. You know, that the golf course is my uh, common denominator where I go out and test my skills day in and day out and, you know, get my competitive juices where we play 36 holes. And, uh, and, and it's not really about the money, amount of money that you – you bet it's just the 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 camaraderie, the bond, and the competitiveness, and the bragging rights, you know. So I play a lot with um, with Gary Templeton, Rupert Jones, uh, uh, Jermaine Dye, David Justice, oh, wow. you know, Marshall Fault. You know, they all live here in San Diego, so uh, it makes up a good group. 
Well, you sound like you've had uh, a, a great life after baseball. You were a tremendous ball player. And again, I, I thank you so much for taking the time to come on to Sports Talk and Sports. It's been it's been a pre- pleasure and honor. It's been a privilege. It's been awesome. And best of luck to your daughter at UW. I hope she takes it. Hope she hope she rips it up on the track. Um, hopefully, maybe one of these days I'll see you on the golf course. Um, but have a great weekend. Uh, go Dubs over Oregon this weekend, right? Uh, thank you very much. I look, I enjoy my time. Thank you for the honor and blessing. Whenever you need me, you you know, you just a telephone call away. Don't hesitate to call. Vince, I really appreciate it. Have a great week. Thank you. All right. Well, that's Vince Coleman. Tremendous. Awesome. We will be right back with third inning and a wrap. We're going to do Benny's Benny the Book's picks after this word. Jim's Pawn and Guns Shop, located at 4212 right, Oleander Drive. Wilmington's number one firearms dealer. Sporting a large inventory, including all brands of handguns and long guns, a full stock of accessories, and all types of ammunition, Jim's Pawn and Gun Shop has it all, including the best customer service in the area. Before the lights go out, call Wilmington Generators. We offer the lowest price and a 10-year warranty for all Briggs & Stratton installations. A Briggs & Stratton powers more of your home for less money. Call for a free quote. Wilmington Generators. We play with power. Welcome back to Swartz Talking Swartz. I'm Les Swartz. Uh, first of all, that was a treat. Uh, that was an awesome, awesome time with Vince Coleman. And again, we really, really appreciate him coming on and uh, talking baseball and and life and, and everything. He's been great. So thanks so much, Vince. Well, if everyone's tuned in to see Benny the Book, the King of Carolina, I got to say the King is on vacation. He is in Orlando, Florida with his lovely wife, and he's uh, playing golf, and I guess he's seeing Circus Soleil tonight, so hopefully uh, Benny's having a great time down in Florida. But uh, he did go 2-2 two and two last week in college. Uh, not too bad, but he finally absolutely killed it in the pros. Benny undefeated last week, 4-0, and oh, so congratulations. The book is back. Uh, it's definitely a roller coaster up and down, right? So, But I have the privilege of doing Benny's picks this week, so I'm going to start with college. Benny's got four games that he's going to do, and the first one he's going to do is going to be the Memphis Tigers um, getting four and a half at Tulane. Now, uh, Tulane's got a really good team. Pratt's a great quarterback. They were in the Cotton Bowl last year and beat USC, but uh, Benny's thinking Memphis is going to cover that. So Benny's taking Memphis in the four and a half against Tulane. Uh, his second game in college is a Pac-12 battle, uh, the last one between these two teams for a long time, and that's the Oregon State Beavers. Uh, three and a half favorites over UCLA. Now, Oregon State coming off a big win last week, and UCLA also a uh, great win last week, 25-17, knocking off previously undefeated Washington State. Good defense. Uh, They really bottled up Cam Ward, who was a Heisman hopeful, and uh, you know they really did a great job defensively there. So he likes Oregon State, three-and-a-half favorites over the UCLA Bruins. Uh, The third game he likes is, uh, that's going to be a toughie because it's the Battle of the Tigers again for LSU. They actually played Missouri last week, uh, the Battle of the Tigers. They're at it again. Uh, One of our guests, Bob Harris, his alma mater, the Auburn Tigers, and he's like in Auburn getting 11 against LSU in Baton Rouge. Uh, Tigers, great offense. Uh, Jaden Daniels, incredible quarterback. They were top 10 offense 
and a bottom 100 defense. I can say that about USC as well. But uh, he's he likes Auburn to cover 11 points in Baton Rouge against the LSU Tigers. In the last game in college, Benny likes Notre Dame. Now, I know Benny's a big Golden Domer. I'm not a big Notre Dame fan. You either love Notre Dame or you hate them. I'm, I'm in the hate category. But uh, two-and-a-half-point underdog to USC. Benny's got Notre Dame here. Now, the game is being played in South Bend. SC's coming off a battle with the University of Arizona last week that went to triple overtime. Uh, Caleb Williams pretty much sleptwalked through the sleepwalk through the first half. He really didn't do much, uh, but he came alive in the second half. And to his credit, USC did put on the points in the second half and beat Arizona in triple overtime. Notre Dame... Incredibly, uh, they got blasted by Louisville, uh, unranked Louisville. They are now ranked in the top 15, but they run defeated. They played at Louisville, and I got to say, I was surprised by that game. Notre Dame did not, uh, you know, not control the line of scrimmage. Louisville ran for almost 200 yards and bottled up the Notre Dame running game. Uh, Jack Hartman had a tough game. I think he had three turnovers. So you're not going to be hearing Hartman for Heisman. That's pretty much gone. So he definitely likes Notre Dame getting two and a half against USC. So to recap, he he likes Memphis, four and a half against Tulane. He likes Oregon State, favored by three and a half against UCLA. The Auburn Tigers getting 11 at Baton Rouge against the LSU Tigers. And Notre Dame getting two and a half against a top five USC Trojan team. Now we move on to the NFL. Benny was a perfect 4-0 last week. Congratulations, book. Uh, right now, Benny's got the Tennessee Titans. And can I just say, the NFL is unbelievable. I don't know how you pick games. It's up and down every week. You just don't know who's going to win and who's going to lose. But Benny's got the Tennessee Titans uh, getting four and a half against Baltimore. The Ravens lost last week. Uh, Lamar Jackson has really not played fantastic. A uh, couple of subpar games. They've had a lot of injuries. But he likes Tennessee and Derrick Henry to run the ball against the Baltimore Ravens. Cincinnati, maybe they're bouncing back. They were one and three. Joe Burrow was limping around. Bad calf. Uh, was averaging about 4.2 yards per throw, uh, second worst in the entire league. But he kind of lit it up last week against the Seattle against um, I forget who they played, but they won big, and he threw for a lot of yards, over 300 yards. And Jamar Chase had three touchdown receptions, so uh, it looks like the Burrow to Chase connection is back. Now they're playing since uh, Seattle. I kind of like Seattle in this game, but Benny likes Cincinnati and the three points, so he thinks since he's going to win it by about six or seven, uh, the New York. Jets, who were an absolute disaster a few weeks ago, uh, maybe they have a pulse. Zach Wilson finally playing like an NFL quarterback, still not close to being there, but is looking better and better every week. He actually likes the Jets in seven points against the Philadelphia Eagles. Eagles undefeated right now. Jalen Hurts playing good football. Defensively, they're strong. They have not blown out anybody. They have not looked like they did last year at the end of the year, but... They have to beat the Jets by at least double digits, but Benny's betting that the Jets cover this game in seven points. So he likes the Jets. And the last game on the docket in the NFL for Benny the Book is the Chicago Bears. Who would have thought a couple of weeks ago the Bears were riding as low as you can be? The quarterback wanted out. He was questioning the coaching staff. But all of a sudden, Justin Fields has put up eight touchdowns, almost 800 yards passing in the last two games. He's looked really, really good. And he likes them getting two and a half at Minnesota. Surprising let the Bears are playing so well that Minnesota is even a favorite in this game, but he likes the Bears in two and a half points. So to recap the NFL, he likes the Tennessee Titans getting four and a half against the Ravens. Cincinnati to win by more than three against Seattle. The New York Jets getting seven from the Eagles. 
That's a head scratcher for me. I kind of like the Eagles in that game. And the Chicago Bears getting two and a half against Minnesota. So Benny will be back with us next Wednesday. Let's see how he does. Good luck to the book and safe travels back from Florida. Again, special thanks to Vince Coleman. Outstanding. Uh, I would love to have Vince back again. He, he was a great guest. Uh, now, we have a daily double this week for you. Uh, not just Vince, but we also have our Big Ten contributor in big Ohio State guy, season ticket holder for the Buckeyes, and knows a little bit about the NHL as well. And that's Todd Trigger from Columbus, Ohio. We pre-taped a show this week. Excellent interview with Todd. That'll be li- that'll be on Todd's YouTube channel Thursday at 4 o'clock. So be, be sure to check that out if you're a big college football fan. He came up with some excellent points, especially as it relates to the Big Ten. And he actually had his picks in the NHL and had his Stanley Cup picks. I know them, but you have to tune in to hear them. So again, thanks everybody for watching. As always, hit that subscribe button. Uh, We really could use the help. We really need the comments. Let us know how we're doing. Tell us how we can be better. And we'll see you next Wednesday, 7 p.m.